It's not unusual to find plenty of wine caves and wine cellars in wine country. What is unusual is discovering a sophisticated broadcast facility inside these well-protected and often top-secret chambers. But maybe it really isn't that surprising that America's number one wine broadcast originates from the soul of wine country. And it is our great privilege to do all we can to inspire you. If you drink wine simply because, well, it's a drink, we've got our work cut out. For literally thousands of years, wine has fueled celebrations, ended conflicts, and provided the ultimate connection between one human being and another. It makes food taste better, lifts spirits, sparks our imagination, and beckons us to slow down and love life. If that all sounds good to you, you're in the right place. So sit back, clear your head, put any worries you have on hold, and join us as we go in search of this week's Grape Encounter. But be warned, we speak a much different language than what you typically experience in most wine-centric environments. But you didn't come here because you're ordinary, did you? Good, because your host, David Wilson, is here to take you far, far away from the beaten path. Here's David. And welcome to the Week 8 Shelter-in-Place edition of Grape Encounters Radio. You know, the good news is broadcasting is considered to be an essential business. The bad news is I'm flying solo with no engineer, no editor, no assistant, and being single and childless, it's just me and Henry, my 18-pound, fluffy, white, multipoo who's got a bit of an attitude. Well, normally we welcome guests to our studio every week. I spend lots of time, as you know, roaming the globe in search of unique and engaging grape encounters. And to truly do today's show justice, I'd give almost anything, anything, to be on the grounds of the Napa Valley's oldest winery, Charles Krug. Because it's a tremendous honor to spend some quality time, albeit in confinement, with two extraordinary icons of the wine industry, Judd Wallenbrock, CEO of C. Mondavi and Family, the parent company of Charles Krug, and Peter Mondavi Jr., co-proprietor of Charles Krug. Guys, welcome. God, what an honor. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for the invitation. And, you know, it won't be long where we can get you on site here, we hope. Uh, well, you know, I've been on site there a number of times. I always tell people it's a must-stop location in Napa. And, gosh, what a history it's got. But, you know, there's so much to talk about today. We're sitting in a situation that I was going to say none of us have ever experienced. But in actuality, I guess the Charles Krug Winery has experienced something like it back in 1918, right? The flu then. Yeah, that was uh, before my family purchased the winery, uh, which was in 1943. And since then, there's been a whole series of things. But yes, a uh, Charles Krug founded in 1861. He passed away in the 1890s. So a financier, James Moffat, based in San Francisco, was actually the owner during that time frame. And it's my understanding that it was he what he does, he leased it out for locals to do uh, wine production. And unfortunately, I don't have details on that specific time frame, but you know, my grandparents did purchase it in the midst of World War II. 
you know, very challenging era. And then, you know, since then, there have been numerous recessions, the Great Recession, other traumatic impacts, perhaps not as significant as this current pandemic, but still significant. And because of our agility and dedication to the business and the love for it, we've mustered through all these and we will this one as well. Well, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about the new normal, but, you know, what is normal anyway? Things change from year to year. In Napa and Sonoma, you've had to deal with extraordinary challenges with fires, especially the last few years, and it's a constant adaptation, I would imagine. So talk to me about that, because I would think that in your neck of the woods, you probably thought that this year was going to be wide open to really kick things back in after, you know, some bad fire history. Oh yeah, this this is completely unexpected and but the the fire history now is you know it's been pretty consistent yeah. maybe not in Napa Valley but in northern California well southern California too as well and so I think that's you know be as you mentioned kind of becoming the new norm of these fire threats fortunately they're not as widespread obviously as this pandemic we've managed to get through them the fires do come at the tail end of harvest and fortunately, our vineyards have been have escaped any uh, fires near them. So we're you know we're in, we're in pretty good shape from that standpoint. But yeah, I think the the idea, as I mentioned before, is just the love and the dedication that the family has and the passion for being in this business is really what keeps us going here. And along with our employees, are you know dedicated uh, to the cause as well, and and being nimble. A small family business allows us to be a little bit more nimble in these situations. I was thinking about the small winemakers that are friends of mine who have really quickly adapted to what's going on right now. Charles Krug is, let's let's call it a, a medium-sized winery here in Napa Valley and in the industry itself. And, I, and, and how, how I relate this is the larger wineries will crush during an entire season what uh, well actually what we crush in an entire season they will crush in one day wow. and what a small winery will crush in an entire season will do in one day so it's kind of exponential once they get big they get very very big so you know we're we're, we're medium I think size in, in the wine industry here in California and Napa Valley but you know overall in the United States with respect to family businesses in general I think we're you know, on the smaller side. All right, let's talk about what you're doing right now as a family business, because obviously your business has been impacted, at least, you know, parts of your business in a pretty huge way. But what is the impact and how is your business spread out over direct to consumer sales and restaurants and bars, et cetera? What does that look like and how do you adjust? What I'd love to do is I'd love to pass that to Judd because Judd is really on the front line doing a great job and he's probably the one to address that one. Judd, take it away. Be happy to jump in. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. And and uh, I think, as you know, I went to school at Cal Poly, so I feel I like I'm uh, back home virtually right now. So I really appreciate it. We are a much smaller company, I think, than most people tend to think we are. And, and because we are family-owned 
And because we're multi-generational family owned, this is the fourth generation of Mondavis, right? We are pretty darn nimble. But the realities of the, of the industry are, are this. I'll just tell you, Charles Krug, about 10% of our volume goes through the direct-to-consumer channel. Now, it's a much higher margin, obviously, but about 10% goes through that. So we're fortunate to be diversified through multiple channels of sales, and that's what's helping us right now. Some of the very small boutique wineries that you're talking about, they may be 100% reliant on DTC, or they may be very reliant on DTC and probably restaurants. Well, guess what? Both of those are closed right now, right? So you've got all of your sales need to be going into some other way and necessity breeds invention and you find ways to do it. Well, for us, we took our team that was on our direct-to-consumer side of things and we sort of redeployed them in other areas, but we definitely did heavy up activities with our e-commerce, heavy up information with activities with telephone. We created something called WIT, which is uh, wine in trunk, which is basically curbside pickup. People can come and uh, order the wines uh, without getting out of their cars. We've got our masked and gloved team delivering cases of wine into trunks. We do local delivery, just a, a ton of different uh, directions on that. And then when it comes to the outside, into the three-tier business where it goes out into restaurants and, and retail, things like that, well, if the restaurant's virtually shut down, that's about 25% of our wholesale business. And uh, about 75% goes through retail. And because we have such a strong relationship with our distributors and with all of the chain groceries and package stores, things like that, uh, our business is up significantly on that retail side of things. And as a result, we've sort of balanced out this loss of the 25% from restaurants and gained it back in increased sales in retail. So we're in pretty good shape, frankly. I'm curious about your opinion about why those retail sales are so high. Are people drinking more because of the situation or is it just because they have more time to consume? And I mean that seriously. Both. Actually, they are drinking more. There's no question about it. You know, I've been in the business now for 40 years. And historically, it's just been this steady eddy climb, right? You know, just culturally, we weren't really a wine-consuming country. Now we're slowly evolving into it. Our consumption is all the way up to three gallons per capita, which, you know, pales compared to Italy and France and Germany and Spain, things like that. So we saw in the last year, we saw this very slow growth, almost a flattening of our of uh, the industry in general. Since COVID came on board, all the Nielsen numbers that are coming out are going from basically about a 1% growth prior to that to a 32% growth. So yeah, people are definitely ordering up and they're drinking at home. I kind of think of wine as sort of comfort food. You know, if you're going to go out to a restaurant, a lot of times you're going to have a mixed cocktail and mixology is a big thing. Well, you can't do that at home. It's not so easy. And the opening of a bottle of wine is just so comfortable and so easy. And that's what people are doing. So the big question is, I wonder if it's going to stick after this uh, COVID finally goes away. We can speculate on that. We're going to have to take a really quick break here, guys. We've got on the line Judd Wallenbrock, CEO of C. Mondavi and Family, the parent company to Charles Krug, and Peter Mondavi Jr., the co-proprietor of Charles Krug. What an honor to have these guys in my solitary confinement. <laughs> I've got cardboard cutouts of both of you sitting here. That's the best we can do All right, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. David is back. 
And from the look of things, he's as revved up and as ready as a rodeo bull with an unwanted cowboy on his back. Hmm, bad metaphor. After all, the chances of keeping your wine in the glass while a bull is trying to 86 you from the party are slim to none. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and in the studio with me, albeit electronically, what a bummer, I've got Judd Wallenbrock, CEO of Seaman Dobby and Family, and Peter Mondavi Jr., the uh, Coke proprietor of Charles Krug. Wow, guys, uh, again, what an honor to have you here. I don't get a lot of company these days. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's... Nor do we. <laughs> well, that's... Yeah. Are you guys going into the winery at all, or are you working from home as well? I work from home. I actually did step into the office today, but I try to get to the office once a week just to go through mail and stuff like that. But no, I'm at home the rest of the time. Okay. And, I, and I'm kind of doing both. I've got returned children from college. <laughs> and so we've got a full house, everybody doing Zoom meetings and Zoom classes. So uh, we have two offices, one down in South Napa, which is where I am right now. And there's nobody in here, so I'm definitely socially distancing myself. But I also go up to the winery a couple of days a week. We do a, a Facebook Live show every Wednesday at 5 o'clock, and I'm the rock star there. So I have to go up and be a, you know, the media queen. So, Judd, a question for you. You know, we alluded to this, uh, you alluded to this earlier. You mentioned a kid's home from college. And you went to college down here in my neck of the woods, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Right. And then you deserted us, and you've been uh, – your resume is a who's who of wine businesses. I'm sorry, Peter. I'm trying to recruit him back down to the Central Coast. <laughs> oh, the heck with him. Well, we won't, we won't let him go. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. I, you know, I think of Napa as the center of the universe for wine, right? But I think of San Luis Obispo as God's country. So you know what? Maybe I retire and start consulting down there. Are you amazed how much this has grown since you went to college here? I mean, the industry? You know, when I went there, uh, that you had agribusiness. You didn't have things like viticulture or enology, that big, beautiful new winery that they're building, uh, or maybe they've even completed it now. That None of that existed. Yeah. It's stunningly beautiful. All right, let's jump on to some other topics here. We've got a lot of ground I'd love to cover. Now, when I read the trades, I think probably almost the number one topic that's written about is millennials. And there's just a lot of angst about, you know, how do we get the millennials more interested in wine and they're drinking all these hip cocktails or they're not drinking at all? Are we making too much of this? And what should the wine industry's strategy be as far as millennials are concerned? Well, I, you know, are, are they important? Yeah, it's 70 million people. They're, right. they're very important. Yeah. There's no question about it. But I will tell you that, you know, in my career, I'm one of the fortunate people who have worked for both sides of the Mandavi family. So I was with Robert Mandavi in the 90s. And in the late 90s, the burning question was, how are we going to talk to the Gen Xers? It's no different than it is today. The difference is this is a much bigger population with the millennials. And I think, you know, in my opinion and in my experience, ultimately, we were all millennials at one point in time. And when we were 21 years old, were we drinking fine bottles of wine? I'll be honest with you, I was, but none of my friends were. It was all beer. And uh, and even back then, a lot of weed was being smoked, right? So there's a lot of alternatives that were going on. I think the biggest challenge is not a generational challenge for the wine industry. And I think this is something that you talk about all the time, which is it is the intimidation factor of wine. And that crosses over every generation. I don't care if you're a millennial, if you're a, a boomer, if you're an Xer, if you're, you know, the great generation. Everybody is a little bit intimidated 
intimidated by wine. There's so much to know. It's so easy to look stupid. And that's our biggest challenge. So I think when you start talking to millennials or anybody else, it's breaking down those barriers and making wine really, really enjoyable and authentic and real without all of the uh, pop and circumstance around it. You wanted to say BS. I could, I could feel it. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, we need more guys like Tim Hanai around. Just says, you know, it's, it, let's just cut the BS and let's just enjoy the wine. He's yeah. got his Cal Poly roots too, you know. I know. Now, let me ask you this. You have a fourth generation. Let's see if I got it right. Leah, Lucio, Alicia, Rihanna, Angelina, and Giovanna. What do they say about that? That is correct. What do they say about this millennial thing? Yeah, well, they're, well, first of all, they're all, um, well, part owners, co-proprietors of the winery, the fourth generation there. Our two kids, Lucho and Leah, are the youngest in a group. They're all active in the winery to one extent or another. Rihanna is actually a, a full-time employee. And, you know, let's face it, they kind of grew up in the wine business. So a little, they're a little biased towards wine business and wine consumption, and they share the, the passion that the family has passed down over many generations. But I think what they bring in is, is they bring a perspective, the portal of the millennial group in there. In fact, just yesterday, I did an Instagram live with my daughter. She actually uh, works in London for a, a pasta evangelist. They sell fresh pasta wow. to consumers there uh, through the mail order, and their business is just absolutely booming. But she is, she actually flew home, living with us, but working full days starting early in the morning because of the time change there, working with that with pasta evangelist there. She's in the marketing side of things. And uh, so we did an Instagram live. That, that was my first one. So that's kind of an influence that you see there. And then the other members are also doing, you know, Zoom meetings, Facebook tastings. Judd hosted them. I was last week, Wednesday, uh, for that Wednesday evening yeah, live Facebook from our hospitality center. So we had uh, Leah was there, uh, Angelina and uh, Rihanna, Rihanna were all there. So what, so what do you think about the influence and the impact of this digital age on wine? I mean, one of the things that I think is super cool about it is the fact that a whole lot of people get to share a whole lot of information, and it's not just about what Robert Parker thinks. You uh -huh. know, you get just all of these testimonials. On the other hand, everybody's a wine expert as well, but are you embracing this, you, you two personally? I mean, I can feel the influence from your kids, but are you jazzed by it? Oh, yeah. I think it, it, well, it's the new medium that we have to embrace. And admittedly, I think the wineries are slower to embrace it than other call it tech industries. But it's important because that is a, an important communication channel to the millennials. And word of mouth, you know, as we used to say it in the old days, uh, is very, very influential on wine sales. And this is a, a form of word of mouth. Yeah, I'll jump in on that too. You know, the, uh, from my standpoint, yeah, I, I embraced it in a, in a huge way. I was one, even though I'm an old guy, I was the end of 2007 when I first got on Twitter and started doing Twitter taste lives and all sorts of different things. The other part of it is, is I think there's this, there's a big distinction, I think, between social and digital. You know, social is really sort of that friends and family and what, you know, everybody getting your opinions from each other as opposed to from the pundits. But digital is a little bit more specific and sometimes is often pay to play and and uh, is a lot more dealing with uh, the back end with Google Analytics and things like that. That stuff is just fascinating to me. And it also makes a smaller company like us uh, have a, a level playing field with some of the big giant guys. Boy, I'll tell you, though, you need a degree really to be able to do it. And I, I consider myself to be reasonably savvy. But some nights I find myself up until 3 o'clock in the morning going, 
what? How do I do that? It's complicated. <laughs> yeah. I've got some really fun stuff that I want to throw at you in just a second here. So let's take a quick break here. Talking to Peter Mondavi Jr. and Judd Wallenbrock, CEO of Mondavi and Family. We're going to be right back with more Grape Encounters. What a fun conversation. Three times an hour, we pause for a couple of minutes so that we can pass the microphone over to the wonderful people who support our weekly wine conversations. They make this show very special, so please give them your undivided attention. If you don't, we may decide not to share the good stuff with you. We'll be back before you know it. We're back with more Grape Encounters. Hey, please do us an enormous favor and like us on Facebook. It's the very best way to learn about other opportunities that we may not share on the broadcast. Also, join our mailing list on GrapeEncounters.com. Listeners on our contact list receive some exclusive opportunities. Become an insider. Enough said. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. And we're back with Grape Encounters Radio. Really pleased to have on, first of all, a household name, Peter Mondavi Jr. And also with me, Judd Wallenbrock. He's the CEO of C. Mondavi and Family. Let's talk for a second about your brand. There must be a temptation in some ways to go the way of some of these other brands that are doing crazy things with packaging. They're doing some very off-the-wall stuff, all kinds of hybrid wines and things like that. Do you enjoy that, but do you feel the need to stay away from it? And what kinds of ways are you evolving and at the same time protecting the integrity of a brand that's been around forever? Well, it's important to stay relevant to the consumers out there of the wines. And there's many, many offerings out there from not only California, but all around the world. And I think authenticity is just paramount. We want to produce wines that are reflective of our family, of our personality, of our passion, and also where we are. I mean, we're in the heart of Napa Valley, and it's world-renowned for its Cabernet-based reds and Sauvignon Blancs as well. And that's what we're focusing on. We didn't always do that because the industry didn't do that, but we started that trend in really in the 90s to focus on it. And there is a very viable market for those wines, a thriving market for those wines, as well as some of the new you know, crazy things out there or blends or whatever. But we just have to be true to our ourselves, and that's how we remain relevant. Now, let's go back to the young generation, your generation number four. Do they bring new ideas to the table as well and say, hey, you know, Dad, you got to be doing this, or maybe we ought to consider that? Oh, yeah. Our son, Lucho, and Mark and Janice's oldest daughter, Angelina, these are, those are the two oldest in our respective families, both sit on our board. And then there's a communication group within the, the G4s that, that talk. And through the board and through them getting together, propose ideas, observations, brings ideas to the table. And also, it's a two-way street. So they're learning, continue to learn. This is, I think this is a lifelong learning situation or business, and they continue to learn as 
well. But yes, they have influence there. And again, as we talked earlier, is educating us on the, the younger generations, getting access to them, feedback from what they're looking for aspects. And David, if I can add to that, I'll give you a great example. Angelina, in our last board meeting, she felt it was really important for us to start telling more and more our green story. And we've been green forever, right? But it's never been sort of in the forefront. Well, she really firmly believes that that's a much more important story going forward with the next generation. And so we're starting to recommit ourselves to telling the story of what we've already been doing for the environment. That brings up a question that I was dying to ask you. I was given a bottle of 1957 Charles Krug by Michael Madavi. And, oh, uh, nice. Yeah, what a nice gift, huh? Yeah. And, and he made me promise to do two things. He said, drink it all in one sitting and don't save it. And secondly, you get back to me and let me know how you liked it. And, you know, it really held up pretty darn well, I thought. But what I wonder is this... Napa really hasn't been on the wine map for really very long when you compare it to places in Europe. But when we go back and we taste a wine in the early days of Napa and then we compare it to wines that are produced now, how do you think quality has changed in the same price category? If you could really take a wine from 40 years ago, let's say, and then drink it side by side with a wine made today, is there going to be a huge world of difference? I think stylistically, you'll see a difference. Quality-wise, you know, I think that's a personal opinion, but quality-wise, I don't think you'll see a big difference. How I explain the quality change over time, because one expects quality improvement, is that the highest quality wines of the 40s, 50s, 60s are comparable to the highest quality wines producing today. However, at the bottom end, and I'm talking about Napa Valley and California to a certain degree, at the bottom end, the lowest quality wines versus the lowest quality wines of today, dramatically different. There was some really bad wine being produced in that era. I mean, almost unpalatable. Today, you don't see that. So the band has narrowed. And let me just throw an example out. There was a tasting done, again, admittedly, this tasting was done in, I think, the late 80s. It was a full retrospective of Charles Krug, vintage select Cabernets, back to 1944, and then Robert Mondavi in, in the more current years as well. It was a joint thing, a fundraiser for UC Davis. Uh, some press there, and one of the prominent press still today gave our 1944 Vintage Select Cabernet a 95-point rating, if, if you, you know, believe in the point system. So yeah. the quality was there. I really think the big change has been in the quality of viticulture. I think that the quality of how we, how we grow our grapes, the clonal selections, the way we treat our soils, canopy management, certainly the water management, all of that has really upped the game for even the lowest quality wines to be exceptionally high quality wines. And on that, I think the style has changed with the quality of viticulture as well. It's not the top quality, but the style of the wines have definitely changed. And you've got all of this technology now. It is, in some ways, I think, rocket science. There's just so much to know now versus what people were doing 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So let me ask you this about your brands. For smaller winemakers, it's all about the vintage, and we let the vintage talk. 
But w- when you become a bigger brand, there's a point where it seems like continuity is really important because it's expected by the consumer who wants to, you know, taste the same characteristics that they're used to year after year. Where do you fit in all of that? Well, we're not that big, so we're in the same camp, as you referenced, the small wineries that really want to reflect the vintage characteristics. But within that, and within the smallest wineries, our winery, there is, let's call it a house style. So you don't get a winery that one year will have an incredibly tannic, you know, herbal notes in their wine and the next year will be you know lighter and and more fruit forward things like that that is an inconsistent house style and i don't know of any winery that operates like that so it's important to embrace what each vintage yields and our vineyards we own all of our own vineyards so most of the wines we produce are largely if not exclusively from our own vineyards so we have control from start to finish so do you not buy fruit very small amount of fruit. Uh, so we buy some Chardonnay and a little bit of other stuff, but mainly that's just Chardonnay and that's and everything. And most of the Cabernet is from our own vineyards, Merlot is from our own vineyards, things like that. Well, in fact, we sell fruit. We're farmers uh, first and foremost, really. The footprint in Napa Valley is, is quite large and we use you know, a small part of the actual fruit that we grow. So we sell to a lot of other people. How much acreage are we talking about? I had read something about 500 acres. Is that correct? Am I off? Well, we have uh, roughly about a little under 400 acres planted in vine. We have you know, well over that and because we have some fallow land and you know, waiting for replants, things like that. But uh, we have vineyards in Hell Mountain within Napa Valley in San Elena where the winery is a number of vineyards in the Yountville area and beautiful property down in Carneros, the very southern part of Napa Valley. And that was Dad's philosophy is if you're going to make quality wines of the caliber he was visioning, you have to have control from start to finish. So Dad went on a land buying spree in the late 60s, early 70s and bought up all these parcels. Never bought a vineyard. He was buying fallow land, dairy land, uh, pear orchard, agricultural land. And you know, he stopped buying land when the price hit somewhere, I don't know, eight, $9,000 an acre. So uh, very good investment. Yeah, I've got to chime in on this because okay. I get this all the time. People are always asking me, you know, how do you how do you make it in the wine business? How do you how can you be successful in the wine business? And my answer is always buy land in 1971. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As I understand it, <laughs> grandfather bought it what for seventy five thousand dollars? Is that the right price? Yeah, that's in 1943. My grandparents purchased the Charles Krug Winery, which was the brand name. It was the hundred and just shy of hundred and fifty acres here, actually within the city limits of St. Helena, and it had the historical buildings, uh, the carriage house and the Redwood Cellar, both built by Charles Krug. These are grand old stone buildings, of, as you've seen, uh, built in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. Yeah, all for seventy five thousand dollars. And by the way, it's Cesare. Is that correct? I think Cesare. People people want to say Cesare or Cesare, but it is Cesare. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right. We're going to come back in just a second. I want to talk family dynamics, if I can, for a few minutes when we return. Boy, oh boy. What a fun conversation. We are talking right now to Peter Mandavi Jr. and also Judd Wallenbrock. They run things at C. Mandavi and Family and Charles Krug. And we'll continue this conversation on Grape Encounters. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back in just a sec. We've got to take a breather for a minute or two. 
don't go away. Remember, if we don't let the wine breathe, it's impossible for the show to be done in good taste. Being somebody who loves wine a whole lot, I wonder what it would be like to have the last name Mondavi. <laughs> Peter, what's it like being a Mondavi? Well, we kind of grew up that way. We grew up when it wasn't that fashionable. We went to the local schools here, grade school, high school. We had vintner friends. I mean, their their families were, you know, working in wineries, principals in wineries, owners of wineries. And this is before the internet and stuff like that. And we just thought that kind of was the world back then. So it wasn't anything unique or interesting. Well, how about you, Jed? Obviously, you're not a Mondavi, but you get to work with a name that's got incredible brand value. That must feel good. Yeah, and I think if you know my background, I actually yeah. worked for the Robert Mondavi side of the business from 92 to 01. So I've worked for both sides of the family, and it's been a pull of privilege. You know, really, this is the first family of American wine. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, yeah. You know, there's no bigger name than Mondavi. And frankly, I believe that virtually every winery, you know, in California today owes a dime for the Mondavis for every wine bottle they sell, because without the Mondavis, they uh, wouldn't be there. I'm not just saying that because I work for these guys. I firmly believe it. They're the reason I'm in the wine business. And they're the reason that I got into it in the first place. Amen to that. It really is amazing, the contribution. I do want to ask this, though, and get this firsthand. So much has been written about (laughs) the Cold War and more than that between Peter, your dad, and Robert Mondavi. But as I understand it, family remained family. And no matter how much they were at odds with each other, from a business perspective, when it came down to family, that was put aside. Is that right? Well, it it took some time to heal the wounds. But yes, the family has completely come together. And really, there was a business philosophy difference on how to run the winery, where to take it. And I think it's evident with how both wineries have been successful. One remains 100% family-owned, our side, fourth generation. Robert was very successful, very influential in developing a very, very large operation there the direction he wanted to go. So both successful, but the business philosophies were significantly different, but both valid. But both sides of the family get together on a regular basis? Oh, yeah. We get together periodically, and some of Tim's kids, Carlo and Dante, have a wine brand called Rain, which you may be aware of. And, you know, I love, I enjoy that stuff. I'm on their wine club. And so, yes, we all get together and chat and talk and share wines from time to time. All right. But who makes the best pasta in the family? (laughs) Oh, that's probably my daughter. <laughs> That's your daughter. Awesome. I'm half Italian, and I had a little fat Italian grandmother. The best thing that ever happened to me was being born into that, which opens the door to another subject that gets me pretty fired up much of the time. You mentioned your daughter making the best pasta. Well, when my grandmother was her age, her domain was the kitchen, and the idea of being in the boardroom was unthinkable. But earlier in the show, we talked about the youngest generation of Mandavis. And it's great that male or female, they play an important role in your company. Now, thankfully, in the wine industry, the imbalance between men and women is swiftly improving, and female winemakers are just knocking it out of the park. But when it comes to marketing to wine consumers, branding geared toward gender and a host of other demographics has gone bananas. I love the creativity, but I really do think marketing people are using labels and language to give wine some kind of an association or personality that just plain isn't there. Too much of it is just plain ridiculous. So 
I want to get your take on this. And let me toss the question to Judd since you've held a lot of titles and worked for a wide variety of winemakers. Does that put you off sometimes? I'm not going to name any names, but there are some of them that really irritate me tremendously because it's just not what the wine is in that bottle. And it's deceptive. Right. What, how do you feel about that? Yeah, there's that? a lot of clutter out there. You know what? I subscribe to what I call the Mercedes-Benz rule, which is you've never seen Mercedes-Benz ever compare themselves to anybody else. And my parents, my dad, you know, he taught me that you, you can never build yourself up by tearing somebody else down. So I never tear down other labels. I never do. There's something out there for everybody. And, and if somebody's trying something, good on them. You know, they're going to probably learn something. Yeah, there's some stuff out there that, really, that is not very, uh, you know, maybe it's offensive to me or is like, oh, gosh, this just isn't real. But you know what? I'm probably not their target. Yeah, that's probably true. So awesome to have on the show with me two of the most respected names in the wine business. I got Judd Wallenbrock, CEO of C. Mondavian Family, which is the parent company to Charles Krug, and Peter Mondavi Jr., co-proprietor of Charles Krug. Hey, Charles Krug was founded in 1861. It is Napa Valley's oldest winery. We've got just a couple more minutes and uh, time for just a couple more questions. Hey, guys, any prediction for what you'll be doing at least for the next, like, 60 days? Well, you probably, you certainly have a plan. What is that? You want to take that one, Peter, or me? Selling selling more wine, (laughs) which, which, uh, you know, the consumers are, are, as we talked early in this show, they're stepping up to the plate and they're consuming wine. I think at the end of this whole thing, we'll see wine consumption going up, perhaps modestly, but still going up. Judd, I don't know if you have anything to fill in on that. Yeah, I completely agree. I tell you, the the thing that probably the next 60 days that uh, from a business standpoint we're doing is we're really trying to, we recognize that our brothers and sisters in the culinary business, the, the restaurants, in particular restaurants and hotels, have really suffered. So we're doing everything we possibly can to help them get back on their feet and have wines ready for them. We're helping them already by making sure that we've got, they are doing a lot of curbside wine sales, which is pretty awesome to see. These restaurants are packaging up bundling wine. So we're giving them some good pricing and some good uh, wines where they can actually uh, make a little bit of money in this downturn. So I think for us, it's all about cultivating the future and knowing that we're going to come through on the other side. The economy may be in bad shape when we come through the other side, but at least what we're going to be able to do is to have ourselves a real strong footprint across all sorts of different channels. And that's where we're working right now. It's all about staging for the future. Gosh, I hope so. Hey, listen, guys, again, thank you so much. I hope that in the next few months, I can get up there to Napa and we can do part two of this interview, but do it on the property where we can really, you know, point out things and describe it to our listeners. I hope you can be available for that. Absolutely. Yeah, once things open up, we'll uh, love to have you up here. All right. But we'll David, have to... I, I, I look for every excuse I can to get to San Luis. So. Right, well, I, when, you, when, you, when you come down here, definitely stop. And when you do that or when I'm up there, we will definitely elbow bump. It's Judd Wallenbrock, CEO of C. Madavian Family, and, of course, Peter Madavi Jr., co-proprietor of Charles Krug. I can't thank you folks enough, and I, I really, really wish you the great success as we go through this really tragic chapter of American history. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed the time. And thank you so much, David. It was uh, really a pleasure being on the show. I can't wait to see you in person. Well, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. We have, by the way, 563 episodes of Grape Encounters in the can. So if you run out of things to do, you can just go check those out. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for being with me. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. 
It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at GrapeEncounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounter Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us, but be warned, you won't want to leave. That's okay, we have a spare bedroom, but it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles. Mm-hmm.